Welcome to the Farm Bits Podcast, a product of Nebraska Extension Digital Agriculture. I'm Jackson Stancil. And I'm Samantha Teton. And we come to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture. Through interviews and panels with experts, producers, and innovators from all sectors of digital technology, we hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. Welcome back to the Farm Bits podcast for our sixth episode focusing on leveraging your yield data for profitability. We got the chance to sit down with Dr. Terry Griffin, a faculty member of Kansas State University, whose work focuses on cropping system economics, digital agriculture, precision technologies, and spatial econometrics. This episode covers a range of topics, including the challenges of looking at profitability versus yield in farming operations, data quality, and the future of technology and farm profitability. He even discusses the role of data in on-farm experimentation and the importance of on-farm experimentation to technology and profitability improvement. This episode touches on nearly every topic that we've discussed in our Harvest episode series, and it is the perfect concluding episode to wrap everything together. So we are going to kick off this episode with Terry talking a bit about his background and how that relates to his digital persona, the Space Plowboy. Here we go. (laughs) I saw your Twitter handle is at Space Plowboy. And I'm pretty Mm -hmm. curious as to what the backstory is behind that because it's a pretty unique, uh, unique Twitter handle. Yeah. about three o'clock in the morning, I, I woke up, set up in bed, and you know, it just came to me in a dream. And I, <laughs> I jumped up and went and grabbed that handle while I was still available. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we mentioned spatial statistics. My my doctorate at Purdue was in agriculture economics, um, with a thrust of spatial econometrics. Okay, so uh, my training is in spatial econometrics. I consider myself to be a practitioner of applied spatial econometrics. Um, there are some people who, you know, uh, don't work with real data. They just come up with, with the theories or the true spatial econometricians. I'm a practitioner of it, um, but it has little meaning too. Um, one of my hobbies uh, is astronomy, space. And, you know, when I was a child, that was sort of why I wanted to really do. But in sixth grade, you may remember, well, you may have read about uh, the Challenger explosion in 1986. Well, that kind of diverted me from wanting to go down that path. But I still had a strong interest in space and astronomy. So um, the space part of my handle has double meaning. It's astronomy and spatial statistics, spatial analysis. And um, so I wanted to um, put those together. And Plowboy kind of made some sense. You know, I come from a, a row crop farm, my undergrads in agronomy, and all of my work in economics is all about how farmers make optimal decisions. So Space Plowboy had a few different meanings and kind of put it together. And, and uh, it's memorable, right? You notice it, and you kind of remember. It. And there's a song that that kind of sticks in your head. <laughs> you know, that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so it kind of makes it a bit more memorable. So people either love the handle, or like my wife, they hate the handle. <laughs> but it's memorable. Yeah, I'm in the love it camp, especially after hearing the story behind that, because it seems like it, it definitely embodies how your career was shaped, which is really interesting. 
So we're really focusing on wrapping up our harvest series. So uh, the first thing is how valuable do you perceive precision agriculture data, specifically yield data, to be to farmers within their operation and even on a broader scale using aggregated data? Uh, uh, is it okay for me to say some things that may not make everybody happy? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> to say things that people want me to say. Uh, that, that, and I'm serious. That's what I do when I when I speak to groups. You know, I ask them that same question. Do you want me to tell you what you want to hear, or do you want me to tell you what you need to hear? It's going to depend. And farm data, as well as most of the precision ag technologies the probability thereof is not as simple up or down, yes or no. The one of the biggest factors in making technology profitable when we're talking about digital ag and farm data is the human capital part. We forget that in the equation, okay? So just like our cell phones, is your cell phone profitable to you? Well, it depends on how you use it, right? Um, but if you left the house this morning and you realized you forgot it, what do you do? You turn around and go get it. It has value to you. Okay, let me, let me say it this way. If you have a farmer that is struggling to do the agronomy 101 things, planting on time, choosing good varieties and hybrids, being able to operate machinery without the machinery breaking down, if they're struggling with those things, adding technologies such as verbal rate and yield monitors and farm data will not make their operation better. So it depends on the who. And a lot of products in agriculture depends on the where, uh, like herbicides, you know, the field, the, the weather when it's applied, and in the weed spectrum. Well, ag technology is a little bit more complicated especially when it comes to the data side of the technologies that require human intervention. Is there adequate human capital either on the farm or at arm's length with crop consultants, extension agents, uh, other third-party services who are willing and able to devote the necessary effort into making it work? It's a really interesting perspective. I you know, we don't necessarily think about that a lot. I think a, a lot of engineers at least are thinking, you know, how can we automate this process more and more instead of actually thinking about, you know, who's implementing it and how are they implementing it. Or even this morning we had a conversation like, oh, technology could fix this. But I think you bring an awesome perspective that it, it's not going to be the solve, like saving everything you have to. Technology in the right hands can do some really good things, it sounds like. <laughs> exactly. You know, when we... People blindly ask me, well, should I adopt X, Y, and Z? And essentially the question I need to ask them is, how smart are your advisors? Or how much time do they have to devote to this? And it, it's it's an uncomfortable situation a lot of times. You know, it, it's a lot like, you know, UAVs are especially like this. It, it depends on how that technology is used rather than how much fun is it to use the technology. <laughs> Absolutely. And you mentioned automation, uh, Jackson. I'm a big, big fan of automation. Anytime we can remove the uh, requirement on the human, we're better off. You know, we, automated guidance is the poster child for this, right? Yep. You know, we, we used to, a lot, lot of people in their 40s and 50s spent their childhoods learning how to drive straight. That <laughs> skill set has been replaced with an algorithm and a satellite signal. 
Yep. Right? So that that's no longer even a factor. Um, can we do the same thing to data? It's not as easy, but I would suggest we can. Uh, one good example is telematics, pushing data from a yield monitor to the cloud without humans removing flash media back in the day as PC MCIE cards. And yep. <laughs> it's amazing how highly educated university researchers could lose that card between the combine <laughs> and the laptop. Okay, so we have to automate that process and remove the requirement for the human to be involved. Sure. And so speaking to that in conjunction with kind of your, uh, you know, your discussion of how human capital is critical to a lot of these precision ag technologies, when we're thinking about leveraging yield data specifically, how can farmers do that either with an advisor or with an automated process to better understand their performance and inform their farm management decisions? So um, starting about 2002, which seems like a long, long time ago, uh, USDA started asking a question during their ARM survey. The ARM survey, many farmers are familiar with this, it's the Ag Resource Management Survey that's, that's done every year. But each year they focus on a different crop. I think 2002 was soybean. And back then, uh, for several years, almost 10 years, they, they asked the question, farmer, if you have a yield monitor, which of these on this list, which of these are the main ways you use that yield monitor? And for, um, I think we looked at soybean, cotton, corn, um, wheat, barley, were the crops uh, during that uh, time period. And the number one use was for corn and soybean was to, for harvest logistics. Uh, they were using the moisture data from the yield monitor, which is actually a separate, as engineers, you know, that's a separate sensor, but it's usually associated with it. Uh, that was the number one use of yield monitor data in the early 2000s. Interesting. Uh, the second one was to document yields, which, you know, it's kind of, a, yeah, we, we knew that. Um, but the third one for third highest use of a yield monitor for corn and soybean farmers and a number one use for cotton was to conduct on-farm experiments. So farmers were telling us that conducting on-farm experiments was a leading use of yield monitor technology. And we'll come to back to that. I want to have several more comments about that. Uh, other things on the list may not apply to Nebraska or Kansas necessarily, but in the Eastern Corn Belt, um, drainage decisions. You know, how do we negotiate with the landowner about adding improvements to the lands for drainage and uh, that kind of thing? But yeah, on-farm experiments is, is kind of where a lot of the action is. And, and I know that's been some of your interest um, with this podcast. So thinking about, you know, farming being a business and always wanting to be profitable from your experience, what is most farmer strategy when it comes to maximizing farm profitability? Is it always going for the highest yield or do you think we've kind of gone beyond that to become more profitable? I see a lot of different uh, strategies out there, you know, in, in economics 101, you know, if you've ever sat in the college class in an ag economics course, we, we talk about the difference between yield maximization and profit maximization. If your inputs are not free, then yield maximization is different than profit maximization. 
Um, although that's kind of in the back of everyone's minds, I do feel like the strategy is usually to maximize yield to a certain extent. You know, I like to play, you know, mind games. No, that's not correct. I like to play <laughs> mental challenge games. <laughs> and so the, the question is, okay, um, would you be willing to follow these instructions if I could guarantee that you could make 350 bushel corn? And usually the response is, no, I can't afford that stuff. Well, you kind of just made the point that yield maximization is not the same as profit maximization. Um, and, but yeah, I think it's a good point that although I think people intuitively understand this since they've been taught these things, uh, the strategy seems to be yield maximization when we have uh, our conversations. You know, if you watch Twitter, which I do, um, you know, you mentioned my Twitter handle, I tweet out about ag tech, but I also listen and pay attention to what farmers are tweeting about. And a lot of times, you know, the discussion is all about yield. You know, you, you don't hear people comparing their break-even prices or that kind of thing. Yeah, and and that really rings a bell with us because in our research, you know, we're we're doing a lot of sensor-based nitrogen management, and so for us, there's a lot of discussion around marginal net return, uh, and usually that's not on a really high-resolution basis. It's usually on a treatment-by-treatment basis. Um, and so, you know, for us, when we're looking at the effectiveness of these nitrogen management strategies, we say, okay, well, even if we reduce yield a little bit, uh, if we cut costs more, then we are still coming out more profitably. And we see that as researchers as a, a positive outcome from the research in, in at least one context. And so for our producers, a lot of times uh, maximizing yield can you know be more of their focus as we just talked about. So why might it be a strategy for farmers to push for higher yields as their strategy for increasing profit? Like does that idea have some traction and exactly how, how far should that go? Uh, I don't think it should go very far, but one example where it did play out in an economic context is, you know, depends on the farm program. You know, sometimes the government payments are based upon previous yield history. Well, that yield history may be more important than saving a few dollars on some inputs from time to time. But that's not a good strategy because we do not know what the next farm bill will say. It's actually interesting. I didn't think of it. The policy change is, is kind of interesting. So. Mm -hmm. That You actually brought up an exact comment we got once from a farmer. They said, well, for like insurance reasons, I don't want to ever risk yield. And you know, you brought up that point, but yeah, we don't know really what the future has in store. So that's awesome. Um, earlier you mentioned that there's not a lot of conversation on break-even price. How many farmers mm -hmm. do you think actually know their break-even price? You're going to put me on the spot on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to throw this. I'm going to play devil's advocate. I don't think any of them do, right? Because you have no idea what your yields are going to be when you're making uh, purchase decisions for seed and fertilized in the winter before you plant, right? So the, the, what do you need to know for break-even price? Well, you need to know what your yield is. You need to know what your input costs are. There was a, there was a segment, I didn't watch it closely. I think it was in Iowa with the political debate, and they were, uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the question was, what's the break-even on, I think, on the soybean? And one person didn't know, and the other person gave an exact answer down to the penny, like, 
No, there's not. And, and every producer has a different break-even price, right? And, and we're talking about spatial variability. Well, every spot in your field has a different break-even price. You know, especially if you do variable rate applications and it's not even purely based on yield. It's also based upon you know, how much product you put out. Um, so the, the knowing break-even price is nebulous, but I do not want to diminish the value in having a really good sharp pencil when farmers are uh, tracking cost and expected yields to, to have an expectation for what that is. So, so you've, you know, we, we've mentioned several times now the difficulty of understanding that break-even price, and you mentioned it's especially difficult when you've got spatially variable applications and inputs uh, in your farm operation. So why might the fact that you have spatially variable inputs need to change the mentality of maximizing yield, and, and how might profitability maps, for example, help people to better understand what that break-even uh, price might be uh, and or trying to maximize their profitability on their farm? So I like to think about this, your students, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So in class, you get grades. You get an A, maybe a B. You know people who made Cs. And <laughs> Hopefully C's more A's than B's. You know? yeah. <laughs> so I like to think of, well, first step is I like to think about every spot in the field. Let's you know, envision a grid, you know, throw a fishnet over the field, and every grid has a has a grade, you know, this has a high yield, give it an A, but it's not as simple as that um, because you're really asking, you know, it, it, it's like uh, a sports team. You, know, you want everybody to perform at 110%, right? Or let's just say 100%. Well, some places in a field cannot produce 300 bushel corn under current technology. Just not going to happen. Some places can. So the question I'd like to ask in a spatial way is, is this part of the field, even though it's producing 40 bushels corn, is it the best that it can do? It might be performing at 100%. If so, that's good to know. Your 300 bushel area may not be producing to its full extent, maybe underperforming. And so that's really important to understand as well. You know, and we're talking about on a field, subfield level. Let, if we zoom out, it's on, like on Google Maps, just zoom out for a little bit. You know, a farmer may have 40 or 50 fields, and each field has a different expectation for yield, right? And also a different expectation for inputs. Well, choose one of those fields and zoom down into it, and it's the same, same concept. You know, different parts of the field have different yield expectations and need for inputs. And if, if a poor area of the field is performing best it's going to be, then that's that's good information to have. Uh, and we shouldn't treat it like it should be producing 300 bushel corn when it can only produce 40. Absolutely. So can we dive into this profitability mapping a little bit more? So with the availability of high resolution data for most people, uh, operations on a farm and reasonably high resolution yield data, we can really analyze farming spatially as you just talked about. So can you talk about how this profit mapping works? Like what are some potential errors and uh, what type of data quality is necessary? Can you just kind of go into that process a bit? Yeah, I, I've got a lot of comments about that. So making, you know, 
the first time I made a profit map was in the 1990s, and it looked oddly. Would you believe that the profit map looked identical to the yield map? Yep. The legend was different. It was just a a linear transformation multiplied yield by the price of the crop. Right. It wasn't. And and since it was all uniform um, applications Mm -hmm. of products, when we subtracted that off, you know, the the maps were identical. Um, so it's yield times price. Well, you know, if we start doing a variable rate, um, you know, you, okay, you have yield times price minus uh, the cost of the inputs and application, um, which may differ for every spot in the field. So now it may look a little bit different than, than the yield map did originally. I'm surprised those aren't used more than they have. And then when the uh, last five years or so, some commercial vendors or services have offered a profit map and, and it's like they discovered gold or something. <laughs> it's amazing to me that um, that occurred. But um, Samantha, the, the real thing I want to talk about when you ask that question, when it comes to profit maps, or anytime we want to use yield monitor data for um, deciding on if we need to do nutrient management plans that specifically I know NRCS with the USDA is really interested in this. Uh, if we're making a profit map from yield maps, we need to make sure that yield monitor data are a sufficient quality to do so. Okay. Uh, would you believe, I know, I'm, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you've been knee deep in this. Would you believe that about a third of the yield monitor data points that we get out of a combine are not accurately measured. I would. Mm-hmm. I would. Yeah. We, we have to go through a cleaning process every year when we get our on-farm research data back, and I assume that's what you're going to talk about a little bit. Exactly. And and I want our listeners to, to I mean, they know that this as well. Um, so there's some circumstances that the machine, the, the combine, or specifically the yield monitor, cannot make accurate measurements. And this is usually having to do with the dynamics of the combine or cotton picker um, for our listeners in southern Kansas, how they're being operated. Right. So we calibrate a yield. Well, we, uh, uh, do you calibrate a yield monitor? Do our listeners calibrate yield monitors? If they listened to our episode a couple weeks yeah, ago, I episode, sure hope so. Episode three, that better be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's step one, and I always try to, um, you know, make the point, and I don't have a good answer other than follow manufacturers' recommendations, but y'all may have a better um, recommendation on, on that. But I do firmly believe that we need to begin with a accurately calibrated yield monitor if we're going to use it for decision-making purposes. But even then... The way the combine is operated leads to about a third of the data points are measured erroneously. And they're erroneous enough that we need to flag them and not include those for further analysis. So I'm a big fan of data quality. Um, and not only that, but I need assurance that that data were handled properly. So what I mean by that is I like to have, as the analyst, who may not have ever been in that field, I want to have confidence that no one has manipulated that data before it gets to me. So I request the raw data as it comes from the combine. So we've, we've talked about this concept of spatially variable moisture, spatially variable yield, spatially variable 
profit. But again, that's all spatial variability. And we also have temporal variability that we look at in agriculture. Uh, and a lot of that is related to year to year variations in climate. And so how many years of yield data do you think it really takes to truly characterize spatial variability, particularly as it relates to profit? Uh, and, and how does data need to be treated across different years in order for those data sets to be combined? So um, my preference would be we need about a thousand years of data for each field. <laughs> to accurately reflect the each weather scenario that would be possible. Mm -hmm. Maybe a hundred, but definitely not three or ten. You know, if we truly want to characterize the spatial variability, because you know, even with ten years of data, I'm, I'm sure that. Um, you're seeing the same thing I am is that, okay, we got these areas of stable high yields and areas of stable low yields. But then you have this huge areas of instability. They're not always high, they're not always low. And we really don't know why sometimes. You know, is that leading us to ask really good questions? You know, one thing is I don't think we have enough years of data to really characterize the variability here. But yeah, so even, even if you're 80 years old, and you farmed for 60 years as the main operator. Okay? You got 60 weather years of information. It seems like a lot, but ask some of these 70 year olds and 80 year olds, how many years have you seen that were exactly the same? Not very many. <laughs> yeah. <Probably zero. laughs> that'd, be, that'd be my impression as well. So, you know, when we think about trying to do this temporal uh, analyses, you know, that's great, but you know, Back in the day, I remember, you know, I made the statement back 20 years ago that you need at least three or you need at least five. I'm like, you know, that, no, you need a thousand, you know. <laughs> um, but the fact is, at best, you're going to get 60, 70 years of observations as an individual farmer. And you got decisions to make for 2021. And sometimes all you got to go off of is 2020. You got one year. Um, that's better than having no years. How is big data coming in and kind of shaping how we're able to do that faster? Because I would imagine if we've got these aggregated data sets from multiple different climates, we're seeing a lot more of this weather variability in a year to year basis. So does that, is that going to play into helping us make decisions with fewer years of data just by having such a broader swath of data? Exactly. So um, big data, I mean, we've been tossing that term around for maybe about a decade in, in agriculture. Uh, it's very fascinating. We, we've seen huge amounts of venture capital money chasing this notion of farm data. All right? So smart, wealthy people are interested in this. It's a real thing. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not just a academic thought. Let's, let's think about it from still with small data. Okay? Some of the biggest farms in Kansas and Nebraska have upwards of 20 plus thousand acres, right? So they get lots of observations, you know, 50,000 data points per acre each year. And, you know, they're spread out across two, three counties. They're getting um, lots of observations from different weather regimes because, you know, it may rain in one county or part of a county and not the other. So, you know, they, they've got a lot of things going on and collecting a lot of information that they're using to make decisions next year. Also in Kansas and Nebraska, we have a lot of 500 acre farms. Okay? And so many of these may not be big enough to even own their own harvest equipment. And so what do they do? They, they 
custom operators come and and um, harvest for them. And same is true of some of the big farms out west Kansas as well. You know, those, those uh, custom operations come through. But regardless, a lot of those custom operators will have the technology. They'll have yield monitors. They'll have be able to provide maps and, and the original spatial data back to the farmers. So if you're a 500 acre farmer, you're, you're sort of at a disadvantage for a lot of things because most technology has initial cash outlays and with higher more acreage on your farm, you can spread those costs out um, uh, across those acres and a 500 acre farm may not be able to do that. But what if your 500 acre farm uh, joins forces with another uh, a dozen, you know, a couple dozen other farms about the same size from across two or three counties, you know, same general area, but, you know, wide enough where you're getting different weather events and so forth. You know, I think that particular group has a particular um, advantage in forming local um, groups to, to, uh, make a not big data but you know let's call it smallish big medium-ish <laughs> you know data uh groups in order to gain insights that they would normally would not be able to get about how these products are performing not only under their management style but under their cohorts management style on a slightly different environment so i, I like to use that example because you know nearly all cases, technology favors larger acreage farms because of spreading out the fixed cost. Well, that's one example where smaller farms may have a relatively better advantage than the larger farms. Yeah, and seeing yeah. the different management practices across the different farmers. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about the challenges with making spatial maps. We talked about how the yield quality has to be good. We talked about how many years it's going to take. So why are, what's the real value or why are they important? Why are we talking about spatial profitability mapping? Oh no. Um, <laughs> it, it, let's go back to an earlier comment. Spatial profitability mapping isn't for everybody. Okay, so if you look at uh, some of the data that I published from the KFMA uh, farmer members about how ag tech is utilized and adopted in Kansas. You know, I've a lot of people really argue with me about no, that can't be right. You know, you only have you know seventy percent of Kansas farmers using automated guidance and forty percent using yield monitors. And I firmly believe that that is accurate for twenty twenty. Not everybody has all technology, and definitely not. Everybody even has you know, some of it. We, we have um, automated guidance is one of the things that, is it profitable? The answer is it doesn't matter. You know, it makes people, the operator, whether it's the farmer or hired labor, it makes their life better. The quality of life of the operator is so much better. And it doesn't matter if if we can reduce overlaps and prevent skips and so forth with seeding. You know, it just makes life better. Does a yield monitor make your life better? No. Uh, can it? Maybe. And so, as analysts, 
I suspect I, I'm calling you analyst. I don't know if you, you get offended by that, but you're, <laughs> you're, you're engineering grad students, correct? Yes. So um, you, you deal with data and you probably enjoy that more than the typical person does. But most people do not enjoy having mounds of data thrown at them, you know, especially if they'd rather be doing something else. Sure. It's not for everybody, but there are people who really enjoy this. You know farmers that you work with who are not typical farmers. They really enjoy digging down, not only looking at a printed map, but really enjoy spatially wading through the electronic digital data on, on computers. Can you know those farmers? Mm -hmm. Well, those are the type of farmers who are going to make use of these spatial profitability maps. You know, in the Eastern Corn Belt, the example was um, negotiating with landowners about installing uh, drainage structures. Um, and it could be other, you know, farm improvements in Nebraska and Kansas. It, it depends so much on the farmer and also on their advisors, whether it's crop consultants, extension agents, um, the, the ag service um, um Set, you know, call them sales agronomists maybe would be a good term. It depends on how much expertise and interest. When I say human capital, I'm, I'm talking about do they have time available? Do they have the energy and the desire to work with spatial data? Uh, that's our biggest thing to consider. And those who are interested will find ways of making use of it that you know, I can't even fathom. And, and so for these these farmers who do have access to the technology that we're talking about and who really are uh, interested in using their data better, is it possible that these spatial profitability maps may be a better performance metric than yield at this point for their operations uh, in terms of evaluating certain operational practices or, or ag technologies that they're using or even just, you know, measuring how well their operation is doing on a year-to-year -year basis? So... If someone brings me a yield map, you know, I can't really judge how well that field has performed or how well the farmer has managed that field without knowing how that field could have performed. That's the question. How, how could this field have performed under the best combination, best bundle of inputs and timing and practices? On-farm experiments is the answer. And this is something I firmly believe that um, farmers who are interested in spatial analyses and ag tech and yield monitor data should be doing. Um, it's going to have the highest return on investment of any other use of yield monitor that I can think of. And that is, you know, you, you know uh, take a, you know, field, uh, a typical field that you would have and um, test some stuff out, whether it's the timing of an application of, a fungicide or, you know, comparing two different herbicides or uh, tillage treatments or you know, whatever you're interested in. And I do firmly believe it has to be something a farmer is interested in in order for this to work out well. And making a decision that will impact a thousand acres next year, or some farms may implement this on 5,000, 10,000 acres. Well, that's, the, the summation of all the profitability from all those acres 
is huge compared to the investment of the on-farm experiment. Although there are costs of doing experimentations and um, you know, I've, I've written some about that as well. It's, it's not costless, especially if you have to devote all of your equipment to you know, take it away from farming for a day to put in an experiment that may take longer. But you know, with vertebrae controllers, we've, we've kind of minimized the amount of downtime um, in, in implementing those experiments. Uh, but that's, that, to me, that's where the action is. That's where this ag technology, you know, yield monitors, rubberate controllers, um, you know, automated boom shutoffs and automated guidance collectively used as a system will have the greatest return on investment. We love to hear that. So first, I would also like to say that I really respect your, like, realistic and really practical knowledge. You're not trying to be idealistic of where we're going. But I do want to ask you, about the future or where do you think we're going? So what do you believe is the most exciting potential impact of digital agriculture relating to farm economics or profitability? Automation. Um, and in economics, we, we talk a lot about profitability, which is part of it. But also we talk about utility and in economic terms, that means satisfaction. And we look at utility of the rural household or the joint utility function of the rural household. How is the farmer or the farm equipment operator and their spouse, how much happiness do they have? Well, with automated guidance, it was an example of increasing utility of the rural household. People were happier. So profitability didn't matter as much. And just like automa- just like the steering process was automated beginning in the 1990s with automated guidance, the next exciting thing to me would be watching how academia research in a private sector will automate some of these more tedious data processes, not just you know, collecting the data from the sensors and passing it to the cloud, but actually analyzing the data without human intervention. and. As analysts, it's kind of bothersome. We've got to let loose of this thing that we're trying to uh, clasp onto. But I, I would encourage, I tell my students, and, and I encourage all the academics out there who, who are listening, how can you replace yourself with an algorithm to do the things that you're really good at doing? And that's why I think it would be so exciting in the next several years coming up. I'm going to tell you right now that I love hearing you say that because <laughs> that's, I don't know, I feel like that's what I'm working on. And I get really excited when we start thinking about automation and algorithms and, I don't know, speeding up what humans can do and doing it better, mm-hmm. more accurately. It may not be better, but, you know, the fact is with cleaning yield monitor data, you know, I give the example, it takes about, if you don't hit the automated button, if you do it manually, it takes about 45 minutes per field. That's doable if you're going to do a field. The problem is we don't have a field. You know, a farmer will have 50. If you're a sales agronomist, you may have 500. Well, you're not going to spend the next six months doing this. You need to rely upon an automated algorithm. Consistency is really important, but it doesn't have to be better than a human. It just needs to be faster than a human. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yep. I think this has been a phenomenal episode to kind of wrap up our harvest series. I think we've literally touched on pretty much every aspect of what we talked about in our other episodes. Uh, but just to to 
completely wrap us all together here, one thing that we like to end every episode with is a piece of advice, uh, last piece of information, or a next action step that you would like to offer to our listeners uh, to kind of conclude the episode, either on this mm-hmm. topic or some topic that matters to you. Yeah, so the thing I leave all my presentations with that is so- somewhat controversial, and a lot of people hate me saying this, is that farmer, you feel rushed to join one or more data companies every single day. They're like telemarketer pressure that you're feeling. But farmer, you are not in a hurry. If you do not see a clear benefit outweighing all the cost today, your best bet is to wait. You are not in a hurry. The data companies and so forth, they are in a hurry. They're in a race with each other to get the most acres as soon as possible to win this big data race. But farmers, you're not in a hurry. Sit back and wait until the answer is obvious to you on who, what groups you want to join. Thank you to Dr. Terry Griffin for joining us on this episode of the Farm Bits podcast. Terry provided us with exactly the kind of practical and realistic perspective that we are seeking to offer through this podcast. There were two things that Terry said that really stood out to me during this podcast. One thing that Terry talked about is that the greatest value of yield data and potentially even the most exciting future potential of precision ag data in general is on-farm research. And so when we think about understanding profitability from a certain practice, or maybe even just uh, the benefit of a certain practice in your production, on-farm research is critical to being able to distinguish the effect of that practice versus your typical practice and how that may benefit your operation. Connected to that, there are a lot of intensive analyses that have to go on with these on-farm experiments. And so Terry also talked about the value of automation, particularly this automated data analysis as being a really exciting future opportunity in precision ag. Basically, he said, as analysts, we need to think about making ourselves an algorithm and that the time-intensive analytical processes are great, but they're better when they're faster. And that's exactly why automation is so beneficial. That's exactly right. And one of the things that I found the most interesting was his discussion on value. So you would think that with him being an ag economist that he would really be focused on profitability of each input, action, or technology. But he also talked about how some of the most important and successful technologies are not the things that provide profit, but are actually things that provide a utility and improve the quality of life for those who use them. Absolutely. And like I said in the intro, this is the perfect wrap up to our harvest series, and it does conclude our harvest series. So we look forward to having you join us next week as we dive into our next topic of characterizing soil spatial variability. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Farm Bits podcast. We would like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast and their commitment to providing high quality informational material to members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond. If you enjoyed this episode and it sounds like something you'd listen to each week, subscribe to the podcast and set your notifications to let you know each time we release a podcast. We would love to hear from you with your feedback. So if you have comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email at nedigitalag at unl.edu, on Twitter at nedigitalag, or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. See you next week on another episode of Farm Bits. Farm Bits.